The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan and now back to the podcast saving money when you start your next project today at Menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com save big money at Hi, everybody. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. Uh, I usually like to start out the podcast with a funny, like, lighter story before I go into the real stuff. And maybe it's fitting that I have the guest on today that I'm going to introduce in a minute. But I would like to, because this podcast will be coming out on the 20th anniversary of the passing of my best friend. Um, Julie, who I talk about a lot. Um, I just would like to kind of bring up a happy memory about Julie. Um, I know a lot of my listeners, you know, are going through some sort of loss or they reach out to me and talk about grief. And it's fitting that we have the guests coming on that we can address that as well. But um, something that I talk about a lot with is Julie's smile. She had the biggest smile in the whole world. And I've been thinking about her a lot lately. Um, and I just want to remember her by her smile and the happiness and joy that she brought to my life. And although it was cut short, I always say, and I'm sorry if I'm already getting emotional, Suzanne, but I'm, I always say how lucky I am that even though I had her for, you know, my teens and my 20s, um, it was the happiest time and the best friendship I've ever had in my life. We've all been put here for a reason and we all deserve acceptance. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. 
I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age, and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud and have been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out. From recovering to surviving and thriving, we all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. And um, I'm going to start there. Uh, I would like to introduce my guest, Suzanne Anderson. Suzanne is a psychologist. She is an author and she is a coach. And her new book is out. It is called You Make Your Path by Walking, a Transformational Field Guide Through Trauma and Loss. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Megan. Thank you. Good to be here. And can I just ask when you, Julie, left this world? Well, the, I love that you're asking this because I like I like to be interviewed just like it's a it's a it's a two way street, Suzanne. Julie left uh, this world 20 years ago in April, beginning of April, and um, she she died very tragically. She um, they gave her an epidural and the the tubes weren't connected and she was giving birth to my godson, Logan. And, um, and she basically got meningitis and they, her brain swelled and I had to get on an airplane and they took her off of life support a few days later. So I flew all the way across the country to say goodbye. And, Mm. um, and she was, she's my angel. She's with me all the time. So yes, that's how she passed. It was pretty, pretty awful. Yeah, and I think what you're speaking to, and I'm sure I'll speak to, and I'll speak to right now, is just how those people that have touched your life so profoundly, which obviously she did, and um, yeah. that that you you feel her now, and it, and it opened, your heart was broken open then, and it still opens now when you think of her, and I like that we were starting with that kind of yeah, opening. and you know. I talk a lot about, um, and I've, I talk about this on the podcast that, um, I believe in soulmates, not just being lovers, you know, they can be friends. I think that certain souls are brought together on this planet. I met Julie the very day after I lost my dad. And, um, and so we truly were, we had this unbreakable bond and friendship and, I believe she's a soulmate of mine and I believe I'm very spiritual and I believe she's looking over me and she's with me, you know, not every day, but she's checks in a lot and that's what I believe. So let's get to you. I would love to start with kind of like, tell me about where you're from. I know we're going to be getting into your story, but I just, I like my audience to know who I'm talking to, what their background is, kind of where they're from, where they grew up. Yeah, I am, well, I was born in Toronto, in Canada, and grew up sort of between Toronto, then on the east coast of Canada in New Brunswick, which is right next to Maine, um, in the maritime provinces, and then went back to university in Ontario and ended up living in Ontario in Toronto for many years in my um, 
my consulting practice. At that time, I was a management consultant. And then, then moved to Europe. So lived in Paris. I was actually going back and forth between Toronto and Paris for a long time, working um, both sides of the ocean. And it just made more sense to be based in Paris. And then lived there for many years. Um, and it was from Paris I moved to Seattle, Washington, which is where I am now. Yeah. Wow. Do you, are you fluent in French? I always have to ask people that. Yeah. I am. Yes. I am. And I'm also so speak Italian. That's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh. My, my cousin yeah. um, is half French. So she grew up half in the States, half in Paris. And I've always been jealous. And I tried to learn French and it did not go over so well in my adulthood. Um, that's fascinating. And so now you're, you're in Seattle, um, which I, I, I feel like I've been living in Seattle lately in Los Angeles. It's been raining a lot right. and I don't under, I, I just have to ask you on a side note. Um, people say that the wet, like the rain and stuff really can mess with your mental health. I'm somebody that needs to be by the beach. I have to, I live at the beach. I have to see the ocean. I have to walk near the ocean. And during all this rain, it really was, I was really, really depressed because I wasn't able to go outside. Tell me about that. Are you able, how do people in climates like that function? I just would love to know. Well, first of all, there definitely there are some people that have that this that uh, neurological and somatic response to the lack of sun, so that the darkness. So that's one thing. Whether you have that, I don't yeah. know. Um, personally, I really like the cycles and the seasons. It works for me completely. I could never live in California, for example, <laughs> or in Mexico <laughs> or somewhere where it would just sun all the time. I like to go to sun, but I really. I enjoy the the way the weather changing shifts me. And I think because I, I'm also, you know, I'm an outgoing kind of person, it helps for me to go in to do the writing and the kind of reflecting and meditations that I do. So this climate, I, I really don't, you know, the Pacific Northwest for me as a Canadian um, is so right. Like it sort of feels almost Canadian and the people are, yeah, sort of a little bit like that. And I go to Canada easily. And this this weather is fine. I don't miss the snow of Toronto. I don't miss living in the slush and all of that. I like to ski a lot. In fact, going off skiing next week um, up to Canada. But um, but I like to go to the snow as opposed to living in it. So so that's me. It works out. It's here a, for me. it's a beautiful it's a beautiful. I mean, I've been to Seattle multiple times. It's gorgeous. I just I had to ask that because it's it, so many of my friends were were spoiled. Although if you love seasons and that's something that you prefer, I mean I grew up on the East Coast, so I was used to the seasons. You couldn't pay me to go back. I don't. Right. I just want it to be Groundhog Day every day and sunny. Um, but it, I just had to ask that because I've always just we really needed this rain in California because we are in such a severe drought on the West Coast. So it's right. very much needed, but um, I just found myself really having a hard time with it. So tell me, once you landed in Seattle, tell me a little bit about what you, do, what like your life, your adult life, what you do, yeah. and how you became a psychologist. Let's go there. Well, 
I mean, it kind of connects, I think, to the to the second book um, that I'll talk about here. But um, the when I was in Europe. I had already begun to see in the in the consulting that I was doing, which was leadership consulting with mm-hmm. Fortune 100 companies, so um, the, in, mostly in the C-suite of that world. And I was noticing, and the, the women who were at that level, who I was working with the executives to actually shift, this was in the 90s, from this more command and control, bureaucratic structures, all of that, um, the women were the most resistant and it was a complete shock to me. I, I actually thought they'd be so happy to see me. First of all, weren't that many women consultants working at that level and they weren't, and they were very resistant to making the changes that later I, I would say I came to understand as um, a more feminine way of being, you know, sharing power, collaboration, communication horizontally, not just vertically and all of this. Um, but at the same time as I was experiencing that in my professional life, I went to Bali, where my sister lived at the time. I'd had a long time spiritual practice since I was very young, actually since about 18. Um, but in Bali, I had a, a profound, who could say, awakening um, in meditation, this, this energy, light, bliss, I call it the sort of bliss wake-up call happened. And I was just consumed um well the eye fell away for one thing and i was just in this beautiful field of shakti of just of of love energy and it lasted for about two days and when i came out of it and i was reorganizing myself around you know who am i and who is the self i remembered that i'd been received this kind of inquiry in the midst of it of the experience of will you help to midwife the divine feminine on earth that was the, the question. And every cell in my body said yes. I mean, my mind was not online uh, at all. So I had no, um, I wasn't making a yes decision. But when I, when I, I kind of remembered this afterwards and I had said yes to this. And, and then it was like, well, what is that? Like, what is that? I don't know. I'd been in a more guru centric um, meditation, um, spiritual tradition. So I really didn't even know what it meant. And I, I came back to to Paris and really within probably two months, I'd left the consulting firm that I was part of. And, and I kind of stepped into that, to that yes. Um, I opened a private practice in Paris and it was full in a minute of women. There were just so many women kind of up against um the the limitations of the masculine model of wholeness and suffering, but not knowing how to, to to make the next move without giving everything up. And honestly, I didn't know either, but I was on this path to find it out. I felt like I was like one step ahead of my clients. So um, so then my my then husband had the opportunity to launch a software company in Seattle. And I, we decided we came out and kind of felt a good, had a good feeling about it all. And I realized just from the, the year I'd been doing the, the coaching that I was going to need to go a little deep. I was going to have to understand more about uh, women and development if I was really going to do this work. Like I didn't really know enough. So when we moved then to Seattle, which brings me to that question, then I, um, 
I went back to graduate school and studied uh, women's development. That was my psychological, that was my focus on psychology um, to really understand what would it be for women to wake up to the next level of wholeness if it isn't inside the masculine model of wholeness. Um, and then and then that led to the to the programs that I started to do and which I put very early on in, in universities here because I wanted the work to be mainstream and not some the research to be somewhere like right in the center of the academic milieu. Um, can I can I interrupt you for one second? I think what you're saying is so important. Um, and I, and so you were doing most of this work in the nineties. Is that what you said? I just want to confirm. Yeah. Okay. That's so, what I moved. It was in. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I find fascinating about this, and I can say this because I worked in corporate America for about 15 years and, um, and I watched how women treated other women and how, It was still the masculine model of I would have an idea in a meeting and then it would be shot down like, oh, you're you're not very like, you know, the way that you're treated. Plus, I'm blonde and I look a certain way. So people automatically thought I wasn't very smart, although my numbers beat all the men, which is pretty funny. Um, But it was the women that I noticed were never supporting each other. It was like, and I talk right. about this a lot, how women treat other women, bullying, the mean girl stuff never ends. I, in fact, I have a book that's out right now and I'll talk about it at the end where I do talk about the mean girl stuff a little bit uh, in the chapter, but I'm curious to know just briefly, cause I know we we're going to go into your, your book that's out now, um, what you say to women and what you were saying to women to kind of overcome that masculine model. Because like I said, it's like I would have um, an idea and then five minutes later I'd be shot down and the very next day, the guy would come in, a man would come in with the same idea and everyone would praise it. But I was treated like I was stupid and, and dismissed. So I'm, I'm assuming that's a, you must've dealt with that you and you deal with that quite a bit, correct? For sure, yeah, yeah. Well, you've said a, f- a few things in here. One is you talk about the phenomenon of women not supporting one another or being competitive with one mm-hmm. another. So, just mm-hmm. to start say something about that, um, which is it's a phenomenon. I actually call it "kill the queen," and it's it's basically very hard for just in our evolutionary journey, you know that that sort of there's a limited resource of the male or power or whatever, and I have to get it for myself or I will not have it and for my, my family. Um, so there's something really in the, the hardwiring we have to work with around what it is for us to be able to really celebrate the genius and beauty and, and power of another woman. And that can't happen until we find it here. And so that move to really be actually connected to the ground of our own sufficiency is the deep work that I do. So that is that means that, and this comes around to the, the other question, well, what I figured out very early on in the first few years of doing the research was that this unfolding for women wasn't about new behavioral changes. They just like just teaching conflict management skills, let's say, or or how to be more powerful 
when a powerful man spoke up and then their voice was cut off, for example. Like there is value in those skills and I, those capacities, actually. But if you're, if at the core, the operating system is based on the hardwiring of your childhood, where you learned that when you had a strong voice or when you had anger or when you did stick your hand up, you got in trouble, then that's a deeper piece of work to do that has to be done down in the unconscious, actually, and in the body. That, so, so my work was really to find out how then can we work with what's under the waterline that is really holding women hostage here. And that was the work that I was doing, and we did for 10 years, and we figured out um, this pathway we call the developmental pathway because it became clear that women are actually, it's almost like we're trying to become the next level of what it is to be human, I mean, really fully, a full human bringing all of our feminine and masculine together. And we'd figured that out after 10 years of the back and forth of research. And we had the manuscript written and we were ready. This was the end of 2012 to bring it out in the world. And then on January 3rd, 2013, my husband took his life. And that trajectory of what looked like we were going up and out took me down and in first. Mm-hmm. Um for for several years until I could come back to the book, that, that book, the first book, The Way of the Mysterial Woman, Upgrading How You Live, Love, and Lead, that came out in 2016. It took a while to get back to that um, Yeah. before I could actually, you know, bring that one out. Yeah. I talk a lot about, which I addressed before we started recording, and I obviously knew your story, and I am so sorry to hear that. Uh, about your husband. Um, I would like to touch on his story um, because I am a big speaker for suicide prevention and suicide awareness. Um, Are you comfortable kind of talking about that a little bit? Yeah. um, The there are always I've come to discover, I think, in the in the conversation around suicide, um, there are different ways people hold that experience. Uh, i I have a worldview that would say we are we have the right, or let's say free will to come in this world when we come in and go out when we go out. So i I think that, I, I acknowledge that for him. This was how how he chose to go out. But the or and the the shock of, of that choice was mm-hmm. profound for me and for everyone around him. So some people, when they make that choice, they have been depressed for some time, or there's been some obvious um, kind of indication that that life is hard and you know this is one of those options for david he was he was a phenomenal man i I mean an amazing loving kind um very spiritually awake i would say being he meditated that this long kind of non-dual meditation practice and had built a, a an incredible life in seattle with he ran in um antique Indonesian antique business and had brought incredible buildings over from 
um, Indonesia antique homes, and we our property was like you people would say it felt like walking into Bali. Um, it was an amazing place that we lived on this uh, beautiful estate on Bashan Island, and. Um, I was not involved in his business. It had been going long before we met. We we met each other and came into each other's lives um, toward the end of our, you know, of our, like, the end of the growing up phase. We were both 50. And he um, he built this, this incredible life. We built this incredible life together. It was amazing to me. It felt like, you know, when you say your soulmate, as your friend Julie, but but David and I really were just so just resonant beings together. And I also had known from things that he had said and things that he had written that when he was younger, he had considered suicide, that it was like an option he had, he felt he had. Um, and he was found it very hard just living in the harshness of the world. I did not meet him in that phase or even close to that phase. Um, but about in October, prior to the January, he started to experience tinnitus. You know what tinnitus is? Yes. And it's, it's awful. Yes. Apparently like the screeching in your, well, different people have different experiences, but a noise in your head that you can't get out of your head, that's just constant. And you, and actually there is a cure for it and, um, people have to learn to live with it basically. And he was he was tortured by it because of the, he was of this desire to be in these meditative states. So that was one thing. And the other piece to bring into the puzzle here is that he he was way stretched out. I discovered after the fact um, in his business, way out beyond the the financial fin- foundation and. And it was coming down. And well, I know it came, it came down on me. It would have come down on him. And we ran, I had my women's leadership business. He had his business and I had nothing to do with that, his furniture business. So I, I didn't really know all that was going on. And I think it was a combination of, you know, these factors, this, uh, you know, I cannot live with this ringing in my head. I just cannot. And, um, this extra pressure, this the pressure of the business is going to come collapsing down, and I cannot face that. And now I also need to just introduce the other piece here because to, to understand, and I go into this more in the book, that his niece, beloved niece, was going to marry the, and did marry, the son of his best friend in Indonesia, whom he introduced. They were getting married two days after he died. All the family was over here from Indonesia. Um, So just to say there was nothing that would lead any of us to have imagined this act at all. Um, And so, yeah, that was the, the devastation was to go through that. And I go through that in the book. It's, you know, and walk people through my own experience of, of finding him, um, which which is a you know obviously a, a horrible thing for anybody to go through. And um, yeah, so I think that's probably sets up the the moment. You know, and I, I remember yeah. there was a 
moment in which I did not know he'd actually taken his life at first. And when later I found that out, as I was standing in front of the fireplace, I recall, and I remember the, the, what I said, which was the thing that just came, I just stood up and I, I said, I will not let his act stop the work that I'm here to do of awakening the deep feminine on this planet at this time. It was like something in me just rose up as a, a kind of, now what did that mean? I don't know. You know, it was just like, I'm going to, how I will get through this, I do not know, but that I will walk in what I call the way of the mysterious woman. Of that, I was absolutely certain. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D, designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you still, something you said was, you know, and, and I hate focusing on the bad things. You know, I know that your book's a lot about how to grieve and process what you went through. And, and so there's positive things that have obviously come out of your story and his life. But I think it's important to talk about, especially for men, I talk about this a lot. They don't necessarily, they have such a hard time talking about being depressed or, you know, if there's a physical ailment, yes, that makes sense. I mean, people turn to that decision often because they see no other way out. Um, I believe by what you just said that, 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 that was your way of being like, I still have work to do and I'm going to get it done and I'm supposed to stay on this planet. And and that was just the very beginning stages. I think everybody deals with that shock and that grief in different ways. Um, suicide is very hard for the we're, the people that are left on the planet are the ones that are just devastated well, by I that. Call, I mean, right? 
the mm-hmm. suicide swamp. I had to work with mm-hmm. that. By the way, let me just say that declaration I made was not, that was like a stake in the ground. And then, mm-hmm. then I descend, you know, then there was the descent required. So that was just something that came, yeah. rose up in me. Many, many, many years later, I could see why it was almost like, you know, being on belay in a climbing situation where you've got to anchor yourself to something in the upper world, but you're going to go down. Now, in the work that I yeah. do, I did with women, and I still do, we work with the myth of Persephone and Demeter, where Persephone is grabbed and taken into Hades. We actually do a ritual around acknowledging what it is to go into the embodied world. So I knew something about descent, but, you know, I went somewhere I'd never gone before, obviously, with this. But I felt I was somewhat equipped because of all the work I had done, but that I would then be growing capacities I couldn't even have imagined at that time. And one of the early things for me was to not be sucked into the suicide swamp. So that is what you're, you know, the, the, there's a shame, an enormous shame that David experienced for sure. I know that. And he couldn't face that shame. He couldn't live with that shame, which, you know, that is the, the heartbreaking thing for all of us. And for, for anyone who's on the surviving end is of course, you could have lived with that shame and I could have been there to help you live with that shame. And actually it's, it could have been a gateway to, to grow up more, to become more whole, to, to actually be able to face that. You couldn't do it alone. You'd have to find someone to do it with. And of course I had to do that. And I had a lot of people that helped me because like, for example, just in the, in the most basic way, we lived in a small town. We were very well known. Um, and this impacted and hit the whole town. And it took a, f- a few weeks. But when I was ready to go into the grocery store, Thriftway, mm-hmm. you know, which is a space, I was, when I was ready to do that, I did it with a friend. And um, and I wanted to make eye contact and not like to just be present myself. I did not do this act. I am not responsible for this act. And and I can, it was like, that's the title of my second book is You Make Your Path by Walking. It's like you do have to walk when you're ready, one step at a time on the ground that will shape where you actually go. And choosing not to attach to the shame was really important for me. Not that I did not feel it. I did feel it. But it was not mine to attach to. Yeah. Do you almost feel like, too, it's like, and, and I'm going to ask you this because I have a friend that's going through this right now, um, lost a family member very recently to suicide. Um, the shame and the, and the grief, but also just the judgment. What would you say to somebody that's newly in this this place that you found yourself in and I know you talk about this in the book but if you can just kind of briefly talk about that uh, probably the first thing is finding having a resonant 
community of friends around you that are holding you in a loving way to find a, your, a ground in your own heart field. So like you would be probably one of those friends for her where you can somewhere where she can be, this friend can be male or female and, and be held by, by loving friends. So that, that's really important because the, the judgment of others is going to be there. And it's a lot to hold on your own that you didn't cause this. I mean, that is, this friend will have to, you have to work your way through this. There's no, and I was very determined from the beginning not to do a spiritual bypass on this. Um, people can, are judgmental. That's how it goes. And you don't have to accept those projections though, but that will be very hard to do on your own without the, and I had this beautiful community of women friends and of my family and really being held and, and his family who, who I brought in also a close, close around. Um, that's a really important thing. One thing I, I say, one of the early rituals I describe in the book is a ritual I did for all of the people close around the, the, um, the earthquake, basically, because one of the hardest things is we're so dis- we, we we don't give ourselves permission to have the feelings we have, you know that's a hard thing, and, and we don't do it with others. So, however, your friend might be able to be really genuinely present to their experiences, like this is what I'm feeling right now, and then you being able to hold, okay, well, you know, let's see what's true about that right now. Let's see about you know, yes, you have to work your way through. I wish I was home that morning. I wish I hadn't gone to work that day. I have to work my way through that. You know, that that was what I did. And it was when I was gone that David chose to do this. I could have stayed home, but I didn't stay home. That is not what actually happened. I made the right choice for me in that moment that felt correct. Um, so I think those are the, the, the reckoning happens and I make my path by walking and then the next day there's somebody else who says something and you have to find your 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 way back again to your own center do you think um that this book like you talk about what it means to move through grief can you tell me a little bit about that because I think that I think that everybody deals with grief in different ways and it seems to me and I mean just the climate and where we are in the world right now, this is so relevant. I mean, there's so much loss and depression and um, our suicide rates are astronomically high, especially in youth and teens and trans and gay. What are, what, what are some of the things that you talk about in the book? I know you talk about uh, what it means to move through grief. Can you kind of briefly talk about that? Well, I think what you're speaking to also just in terms of the rise in numbers right now, both both mm-hmm. depression and anxiety, just to say, I think it has something to do with the enormous alienation so many people are feeling right now, that we do not feel connected and mm-hmm. that we belong. That's why I just come back again to say, you know, this, the quality that is not true. It's not true that we are this isolated little billiard ball 
um, you know, pinging around the universe. We are part of this incredible web of life. But, but when in the world that we're in right now, we often don't feel that. So sometimes it just takes the one reaching out move, you know, being willing to move toward. Um, so, but to come to the, the notion of grief, I do think everyone goes through grief differently. And that's, and so it should be. The main thing from my experience is to learn to be with the waves when they rise. So grief, like actually all the emotions, the way that, that we're sort of set up in, the, in our, in our um, human mechanism, is that the emotions rise and they fall. They move. They're more like an ocean. They're not actually static. The, the issue is more that we tend to hold on to them when they're moving. Either we want to forever feel happy and joy, or we the, the grief rises and we're afraid it's going to get worse, so we just attach to it, you know, try to keep it at least here because we don't want it to go there. And, um, but it is actually a wave, and this is something I teach and I do with women because this is learning how to use this mechanism that's key. So when a wave moves, grief and it can be triggered in many strange ways as i'm sure you know over the when you're just coming out of a trauma or loss um it could be this strange thing of a of a a man walking down a street holding the hand of his his love you know something simple and all of a sudden the wave will just it'll remind you of how you walked with you know your partner or whatever so then what I learned to do was to move with the wave, to let it move me. If I was somewhere where I could do that. And sometimes um, the wave is bigger than we can hold. And that's again, where we need the, the friend because literally our nervous systems can't quite hold that. And we need the base, the energetic base um, of other. So I had a little team of women that were just on call that I could call um, when the wave would come and I couldn't, I couldn't hold it or be with it. But when, if I could be with it, then, and let it go all the way through, I would arrive somewhere actually quite open, my heart open and, um, and released from something like it, like the wave actually was cleansing for me. And it certainly is true, and I, I'm sure you know this too, that grief opened my heart to the world, that for sure. The breaking of, of my own heart broke me into connection with others in a way, and, and to the natural world, to everything. So it's like grief is the great so you're, um, This You're making me emotional, because I think that that's such a beautiful analogy, a wave the the wave because it is so true when you you know I'm very open about talking about my own struggles and when I found myself in the darkest darkest place of being in like a constant struggle with suicidal ideations and not being able to snap out of it and then to get to a place where I was like okay like I can do this I'm gonna keep doing it and I believe me, like I still struggle. Like we all do. That's part of life. But I think it is so important like that you talk to somebody or, you know, you get it out. And that's that like grief is, a, I know this sounds 
strange, and I know you can probably relate because of what you talk about, but in some ways it's a gift. So the pain that I've gone through in my life with all the loss of my dad and my sister and Julie and the mean girl gang up stuff and just being so alienated, it changed me into a better human being. So my pain that I still carry and believe me, it pops into my head and then I have to really work on it. And I love the wave. You know, I'm riding that wave right now. It, it is a gift. It's a gift of being empathetic. It's a gift, the gift of being able to talk to other people and really try to acknowledge grief and loss and what we're all going to go through inevitably in life. And we're all going to be riding that wave and some are going to be crashed on the shore and right. then the wave's over and then it, the cycle starts up again. But I really, I really think it's beautiful that you talk about that and how it can also in some, Megan, I'm just, go ahead. It, it can also be, and I, I have in the back of the book as a resource, a, a guide to, to, to working with the waves, but it could also be fear. It could be any of the major emotions, right? It could also be um, anger. It can also be joy. Um, mm -hmm. For example, I know for myself when there would be moments of joy, like happiness, just simple happiness, sitting with the friends, laughing about something, um, I would really soak it in, like let every cell of my body take that joy in because I knew I was going to go down again. And yeah. sometimes it's hard for people I know after something like this, there's a feeling of, I can't happiness is like a, it's a sacrilege. If I, if I have experienced joy or happiness, it must mean that loss didn't matter, or it must be a way that I'm not honoring that person or what their loss, you know, yeah. it's not actually so in my, in my experience, it is, the 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 grief is real, but it's not the place, it's not actually healthy to be, and it won't, if we let the waves move, we won't be in that deep sea diving 24-7, you know, beyond the initial wave, you know, beyond the, the first pass. So letting yourself really soak up um, in every, you know, into the your body, because then you need it. It's like the oxygen, though, when you get pulled down again by the undertow you have stored up in your system this capacity to be there. You can remember, it's almost like you can remember the, the mem like, I'll give you an example. So when I lost Julie, I was in a car the next day. I have, I don't even remember. I mean, a lot of that period is a blur, but I happened to be in a car with her mom and like, I think my friend Kara and maybe my friend Carter, there were a few of us in the car. And I remember telling a story, like trying to be funny and trying to like tell a funny story about Julie and a memory about Julie. I was also in complete shock at the time, you know, because it happened so quickly. Um, But I do remember that. And I remember looking back on that period and feeling so guilty because I, could see her mom sitting in the front seat, just in shock, looking out the window. And my intention was to tell the story to bring light or something. I didn't know. I don't think we know the right things to say or do. 
And then with the the additional layer of like loss of suicide, there's all the shame that you're holding, you know? So I think that it's so important to remember our loved ones and, and share those moments of like happiness. It, it's, that's what they would want, right? That's what I think. Yeah, at least. Well, I, I think that, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's making me think of, um, well, one of the things that was really powerful for me, um, mm-hmm. essential for me, was this a thread that I already cultivated in my life that was a part of, again, the teaching for me, which is something I call the beauty way or the walking in the beauty way. What that means is just I, I working with poetry, working with beauty as it arose, you know, just like a, a rose petal with a drop of water on it, um, music, uh, anything that evoked my heart like that, uh, and in a way, the breaking open of, through this trauma broke me open to more of that. And, and that's another incredibly healing possibility to be moved by, by beauty and the beauty even of being alive and being here, being the one who is here when the the sort of torn fabric of life around uh, suicide, especially, is so ugly, you know, and so harsh. And then to find in your own broken open heart the the, the moments of beauty, and, uh, as well as, let's say, the laughter that can happen in some silly way or the humor or the joy or whatever. But I'd say that, that would be a, another thing that was very powerful for me. I'm actually on my webpage, on the book's webpage, which is on my webpage. Um, I have, I haven't put it up yet, but I've got, I'm going to put up my resource list of poems um, because that was so key for me. I mean, there were poems I, I used right away that were like the guiding light for me. Um, and then there were poems that I used as the phase as things went on, because poetry, again, can speak to the unconscious and the conscious mind. And that's the biggest thing when you're going through something like this. All of you, you want to engage m- most of yourself, right? But usually we only think we have this or this little mind up here uh, running around on top of, you know, stuck on top of a head. But it's two thirds of ourselves, the unconscious, that's really, really um, shattered by this kind of loss and we have to find ways to include that part and, and that's for sure one way it was for me I love that too and I love music I love that you reference music and I think that's really important I know that f- music for me is extremely spiritual and I do tap into that uh, I'm a singer. So singing for me is very therapeutic. There's, there's, it's so important for people to find ways and know that the, that, that, that this is just part of the cycle. Right. And, and, um, you're going to be okay. I, I say that a lot. I say that almost every podcast I say, I tell people keep, keep going you matter, keep going. And I like to remind my audience of that. For the sake of time, Suzanne, can you share with my audience um, 
your your social media so people can find you on Mysterial Woman on Instagram and your website is mysterialwoman.com. Yeah. We should probably spell that M M Y S T E R I A L Mysterial. And let me just say, Megan, Mysterial is a word that that I came up with um, when we were doing that first year, those 10 years of research. Yeah, explain what the word Mysterial means. I love it. Yeah. It's a word I'm, I created bringing together two words, mystery and medial, mm-hmm. because we were starting to see these incredible capacities coming online in women that we were working with, these new ways of being. And there was no word to describe it. And mystery being this ability to really be with uncertainty, to walk with the not knowing, not as a horror and, you know, terror, but as actually a place of possibility for the new, the to be a woman on the edge of evolution, you certainly need that ability to be in the mystery. And then medial is a word that means that kind of finding the middle way or finding how to stay in the middle um, in our lives. So for us, that also has to do with the awakening of the feminine and the masculine and how they come together. So that's what mysterial represents. I love that. That's my new favorite word. I might steal it. Um, steal Suzanne. It. <laughs> Suzanne, it was so lovely to meet you. And I, I truly uh, hope that my audience uh, touches base with you, goes to your website, connects with you on Instagram and gets your book. Um, this has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on. In closing, everyone, really quickly, I forgot to talk about this in the beginning. If you're watching this on YouTube, the book, Her Badass Story 3, You can purchase that on my website right now, um, judgingmegan.com. And uh, you can read my chapter that's out right now. And you can also get it on Amazon. And um, I think it's so fitting that we're talking about women and, you know, how strong we are and what a gift it is to be a woman, I believe. And that we as people need to support each other. And I learned so much from you. And I think there's a reason why I talked to you today, because I needed to hear some of the things you said, especially the references of the waves. I really loved that. So Suzanne, thank you so much. Everyone remember, be happy by making other people happy. Thanks, Suzanne. Judging Megan with Megan Judge.